everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Uncommon Paradigm Podcast. My guest today is Dean Nelson, and he's here to discuss his latest book, Talk to Me. So, Dean, thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to me. Oh, I'm honored to be part of your program. I've, I've looked at some of the guests that you've had in the past and think, hey, I'm in some, I'm in some good company here. So that's, I'm looking forward to this. Oh, that makes me feel great. Thank you. So if you could, could you just describe uh, your basic background and then how you came to um, publish this book? What was the journey like on it? Sure. Well, my background is as a journalist, you spend a lot of time uh, doing interviews, both uh, impromptu ones uh, for breaking news, but also interviews where you take a little more time and try to get past the uh, the surface and the cliche and the propaganda. And it just seemed like some interviews went really, really well, and some didn't. And then I also started this uh, uh, this program called the Writers' Symposium by the Sea, where I teach journalism now at a university in San Diego. And we'd bring in these great writers, and I started seeing that there was a pattern to why some of these interviews went so well, and conversely, why other ones did not. And And so I started putting together some of the things in common that really good interviews do, right. and obviously some of the things in common of interviews that didn't go so well. And and all, all of this was in an effort to try to figure out how to keep doing interviews at a higher and higher and higher level. And I, I was actually put, I, the book that I wrote, Talk To Me, was not the book that I had pitched to the, uh, to the publisher. Oh really? What I had pitched? No, no. This this is one of the great uh, things about you got to you got to go where the uh, the the roads open, and that is uh, I had pitched to them a book about writing. I thought I knew something about it. I had talked to a bunch of writers. Uh, I had lived as a journalist for a number of years, and they rejected it and said, "Hey, we've got there are lots of books about writing by people more famous than you. Stephen King has a good one. Uh, Anna Quinlan has a good one. Anne Lamott has a good one." All these people who everybody knows have books about writing and you're not that famous. And then here's what the editor who was rejecting my idea, here's what she said at the end. She said, however, you seem to know something about interviewing. Would you be interested in talking about doing a book about interviewing? So I immediately called her and said, yeah, I, of course I would. And so just in a brainstorming phone call after that, we kind of laid out what this book should be. And then then it was just really, really fun to go after. Yeah, I can imagine. Because reading the book, um, I read it for a second time just recently in the run-up to this uh, conversation. Good for you. <laughs> it wasn't a tough read at all for the second time. I think it's the type of book I can pick up regularly when and if I need correction for my interview, my conversation, because um, it's, it's the sort of book that you can flick through to a certain chapter and find what you need, get the answer, and then off you go again. Well, and, and, and let me let me add to this, if you don't, I'm sorry if I cut you off, I, I, but I, I just had a, a, a thought about this. One of the things that I thought was so, so strategic on the part of the editor, I'd love to claim that uh, I had this idea, but it was, it was my, the editor who had this, I mean, had this idea. She said, don't just make this for um, journalists. 
uh, broaden it out. Think about podcasters, you know, people like you. Think about social workers and lawyers and financial analysts and people who have to ask questions uh, for a living and get uh, decent information. And so that's that was part of the goal. And so what you just described was exactly what I was trying to do, which is there are just going to be some certain times where, um, okay, let me just kind of go through uh, the successes and failures here or some good advice for anybody in any profession. Yeah, and it definitely came across that way. Reading it, because I'm not a journalist, uh, I never have been, nor have I really had much of an interest in it until I started this podcast. And for me, I don't look at interviewing, I look at more of a conversation. Exactly. And you you pose quite a lot of different types of interviews in the book and how to go about doing it and everything you need to think about for it. So we'll dive into it. One of the first chapters or the first one or two chapters, describe how you who you should decide to talk to coming from a journalism, you have to decide there's numerous amount of people you can go after. And then how can you get them to agree, which is a big part for me. Uh, How could I get someone like Mr. Dean Nelson to come on my podcast? So what were some of the tips and tricks that you wrote in the, in the book? Well, starting with who do you want to interview? You really have to think that through uh, who do you want to interview and then think about uh, why, uh, oftentimes, we, uh, and I'll speak from a journalism perspective, you just go with the obvious people. So if, uh, if something is happening with a, a company or a product or, or whatever, uh, the journalist, the, maybe the novice might think, oh, I need to talk to the CEO of the company or the chairman of the board or, or, or whatever. But oftentimes, uh, the folks who are way up there in the hierarchy, they have no idea what, what the, what's happening in the, uh, in the trenches. And, and so they actually wouldn't be very good interviews at all. And so you want to go after, and, and this is what I explained in the book, where I, I say the three E's, uh, you, you want to talk to the explainers and the, uh, and the eyewitnesses, experts. So it's experts explainers and eyewitnesses. And really, those folks are not necessarily going to be the obvious uh, people way at the top of the food chain. And um, so you, you do have to think that through and be uh, sort of strategic and who, uh, who you want to talk to. And then the question is, why do I want to talk to him? Do I want to just get a, a really pithy quote from this person? Or do I want to... Um, uh, do I want to get some understanding and uh, really get some kind of an explanation so that I can help my readers? And oftentimes when, when you're looking for an eyewitness, you're just looking for somebody who can put it in these human terms so that we have a, a sense of, of authenticity and humanity about the experience or about uh, the issue. So I think considering those folks, that's almost never somebody in charge or a celebrity. You know, we all, we always think we want to talk to celebrities and really celebrities have very little insight uh, on, on anything. Uh, so I, I know that that's the temptation, but uh, they aren't all always that helpful. Yeah, that's true. And for someone like me, who is in this realm starting out, to have someone like yourself, who is far greater on the uh, hierarchy of be it fame or experience, whatnot, it's almost like a, a trophy 
that a fisherman would try gain the biggest fish. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's by the way, I'm not at the high <laughs> at the high end of the food chain. There's plenty of people. Plenty of people higher than me. Ah, come on, Dean. But I'm accessible, and 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 there. But there are a lot of people who just you know have got all these layers of people that you have to go through. Right, the gatekeepers, as you say. Exactly, exactly. And then here's here's the thing: once you get them, they're often not that interesting. Yeah, okay, you got bragging rights that you got this celebrity or you got this CEO, but. Did they actually contribute anything to the overall knowledge or the overall complexity of an issue? Probably not. Yeah. Or are they just the name that you can use? Yeah. Exactly. So when you eventually find someone that fits those categories, you find it be it all three, how would you then go about asking? Yeah, I I think, and, and this is probably the drumbeat throughout the book, is that preparation is everything. I, as much as possible... I try to know the answers to the questions before I ever ask them. Now, you, 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 you can't do that if you're talking to an eyewitness or someone who's, who's just had something happen to them or, or whatever. Um, you got to treat that, uh, that situation differently. But, but for most people, yeah. when you've got some time before the interview, you should probably know that topic and know that person and, um, and really know the answers to the questions ahead of time. Because most of the time, you're not really looking for information. You're looking for insight. And you're looking for uh, context. And you're looking for an explanation of how something happened or how something comes together. And so if you already have a fundamental knowledge of how that works, that conversation is going to go so much better. And that person you're talking to is going to be so much more interested in talking to you because now you aren't asking all the same questions that everybody else is and you're, and you've set yourself apart. So really that's, it's a, it's a way uh, to be taken more seriously is I, I just say preparation is the key to everything. Yeah. And what I really like about the book is that you gave your personal stories after some of the big points. It really hammers in the, 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 the point you're trying to make. And one of the good ones I remember, uh, without the details, it was taking some of the good interviews that you've seen through the past and have had, and then also on the flip side, some of the bad ones that you've seen online or through various different sources. And there are some bad ones out there. Uh, but 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 here's here's the cool thing is once you get kind of tuned into what is a good interview and what is not, you start listening whether it's to the BBC or to NPR or uh, watching something on, on YouTube or, or on television, and you start seeing, oh, that was really skillfully done. And, and you, can, uh, you can kind of take note of that and say, I wonder if I could try that approach. And likewise, you can see when somebody just misses it, you know, somebody has, has answered a question that just begs for a follow-up. And then the interviewer just lets it go and moves on. And I'm just thinking, oh, you missed it. But it, it makes you it makes you a much more discerning listener and viewer when you think about it. It does, yeah. And it's funny you say that because that was one of the triggers for me starting a podcast because I listened to a lot of them. And there are a few exceptional ones that you don't even think that they're in an interview situation. And they're so good that you, you can't even comprehend how much work goes on behind the scenes. And then you hear some that are 
off the beat, like you say, there's, mm-hmm. there's questions in your mind as a listener. And then the, the interviewee is just not asking the right sort of things. Hopefully after reading a book, I can become that next level uh, type of interviewer. You're doing fine so far. <laughs> so far, without going too much into the details, because there's a lot of information in your book. Can you give us an example of a wrong way to prepare for an interview? Well, the wrong way to prepare would be to not prepare at all and just think, well, I can, uh, I can just wing this. I've got a great personality and uh, I'll ask a, a couple of good questions and get this person on a roll. Well, the thing is, you don't, you don't know what mood that person's in. That person could have just had a fight with, uh, with, their, with their partner, uh, could have just gotten a bad diagnosis. Or, and, I'll, and I'll give you an example of this. Um, when I interviewed the, uh, the basketball legend, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, you know, I was interviewing him about his writing, not about his basketball, because uh, he's a really, really fine writer. And I luckily I was prepared enough to not be put off by uh, just kind of this, what I considered to be kind of a surly mood. Uh, he just seemed to be in a bad mood. And people had told me that that was kind of his, the way he rolls anyway. Right. But I don't know. I, I felt like I wasn't getting very far uh, on a connecting level with him. And then I found out later on his way down to my interview with him in front of an audience, he had just found out that a good friend of his had died. And so had I not overprepared for that, I could have just been really thrown off by his bad mood. Uh, the fact that he was grieving, I didn't know that. He's not going to tell me that. I could have been thrown off by that. But since I had prepared enough, I, I knew I could keep going so that that mood didn't throw me. I, I think this addresses the question you just asked. I, I think one of the problems oftentimes a, uh, an interviewer might have is they let their ego get in the way. And then they, it becomes kind of about them instead of about uh, the person you're interviewing or about the information that you're trying to uh, reveal or extract or whatever. And, and then that person just kind of gets caught up in either their own, I don't know, their own baggage or their, what they're, they've got something to prove or they've got an ax to grind or they either love this person so much that it becomes this kind of love fest or they hate this person so much that it it just becomes really distracting. So I I think one of the one of the real disciplines, and I really do think it's a discipline, is to just get out of your own way. So where would you draw the line between someone that hasn't prepared at all and one of the conversation styles you've wrote in the book is the the, like the naturalist is just or he or she is naturally gifted and they just start with one question and then see where it goes where would you draw the line between not prepared and gifted yeah i i give an example of being in colombia in south america uh, where i was being interviewed in front of a, a huge audience on some um uh, free speech issues. Uh, this was just after Donald Trump had been elected. And um, this magazine editor from Bogota, Colombia was, I, I noticed he didn't have any notes. He didn't have, he didn't have anything. And we're standing backstage. And I just said to him, because I, I'm, this is what I do too. I just said, so how are you going to do this? I said, 
uh, do you have questions prepared? I wasn't asking him what they were. I was just saying, how, how do you work? And he said, I only prepare one question. And, uh, and I'm going to ask you one question. And depending on what you say, that's where the interview is going to go. And I thought, okay, well, that's, that's a high wire act with, with no net. Uh, but here's the thing. He knew so much about free speech and he knew so much about uh, American First Amendment laws and he knew so much about um, the, the general topic that he, he could just keep dropping into that instead of uh, knowing where I was gonna go. But that, that's one style. And that's uh, that's a little riskier than I'm typically willing to go. Yeah. And then, so so that's one extreme. The other extreme is being so prepared and so locked into the questions that you want to ask that you never look up from your notes and and you just you ask a question, they give an answer. You may or may not have paid attention to what they said, but you you've moved on to the next question, and now it's not a conversation. Now it's just uh, you know, I'm going through, I'm just going through my notes. So those would be the two extremes. I hope, uh, I hope I'm somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. Well, from what I've read about you, definitely. Uh, but that's no compliment from myself. As I said, no journalist, <laughs> but, um, that's all right. There's, there's still time. There's still time. Yeah. Still time to get there. <laughs> but one of, one of the major things that I read and I said just at the start, it was, um, how you don't actually have to be a journalist to read the book. I came from a podcasting point of view and curious side. Um, there's lots of stuff online that I've listened to, read, watched that gives you a really good understanding of how to have a conversation and the different types of conversation that go along with a certain person. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, oh, does personality play a role? Extroversion, introversion, curious, open-minded, closed-minded? That's a, I think that's a really good question. And it's a very, very important question because I think there are a lot of people who think that to do what you do, for instance, uh, you have to be an extrovert and you have to be this sort of type A, um, uh, aggressive uh, kind of person. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's true at all. Um, I think the, the success that some podcasters have is how just authentic they are to themselves. And, uh, and you, can, you can tell when somebody is kind of role-playing and you can tell when somebody's trying to imitate somebody else. But the ones who are just authentic and uh, that communicates and that comes across and I think it draws out a better interview than somebody who just comes in with guns blazing. I don't know, those, those those are the interviews that I call uh, heat for heat's sake and not heat for light's sake. You know, the, uh, the more authentic you can be, even with your um, maybe discomfort in talking to strangers, the more authentic you can be about that, in my opinion, the more effective the interviews can be. Mm, I really like that. I really like that answer because a lot of things can be answered well with just being authentic. If I could give you an example of this, and this this is out of uh, out of the book, but but this is this is the best way I can illustrate it. I was working on a different book project at home one time, and for whatever reason, and there was a knock on my door. I was the only one home, and there was a knock on my door, and um, for whatever reason, I answered the door. Typically, if I'm writing, 
I have blocked out the world and everything, but I don't know, there was something about this particular knock. And so I go to the door, it's in the middle of the day, and here's this boy standing my in my doorway. He's maybe, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. And is, you know, he's wearing these short pants that don't fit, and he's wearing a shirt that doesn't fit, and he's adjusting his glasses, and he just, everything about him looks so, so awkward. And he just kind of stares at me for a second. And he goes, uh, I'm going to try to sell you something. And as soon as those words were out of his mouth, I was reaching for my wallet I, I, to, to, to buy whatever it was he was selling because I thought, this guy isn't trying to be anybody but who he is. He's not trying to get one up on you and fool you. No, he, he wasn't trying to schmooze me or tell me how how great my yard looked or anything like that. He just, he just went right for it. And I just thought, yeah. I, dude, I respect that. I'm going to buy whatever you got. It was a bunch of candy that I didn't need. I just gave away, but I, but I just thought, Oh, I, I want to honor this guy. And that, that's what I think comes across is that kind of authenticity. And what sort of, um, because you seem very genuine just from the 26 minutes dialogue we've had, how, <laughs> apart from experience, how would you, gain that level of understanding. Uh, that's actually important because, you know, we spend most of our youth trying to imitate and try on this suit, see if that fits. We try on that suit and see if that fits. And eventually you get to a point where um, the only suit that really fits you is 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 the one you've got, not the, uh, the one you're trying to get. And I wish, Sheldon, I could have come to this place sooner than later. But eventually I got to a place after a lot of practice and um, and just seeing what worked and what didn't was if I just kind of come clean with who I'm talking to and just come across as somebody who's not trying to be super friendly or super adversarial or whatever, I've, I've just come across as me. Um, I That just came with experience. So uh, you're, you're going to have to try on a whole bunch of suits before you figure out which one is the one you were born with. Yeah. And maybe a good way for anyone that is listening that is in that sort of trying on stage, run away from what you don't like. And I've seen many salesmen, saleswomen, people that before they even open their mouth, you have a, a weird feeling like, oh, what is he trying to sell me? What does she want? I got yeah. it. Yeah. So you spoke about when you're, um, when you're writing, you like to block everything out nowadays you have everything trying to grab your attention. So what is your, uh, what is your writing, your, your normal writing day look like in terms of how productive are you? Do you always write every day or is it just let it come out? You know, I, I write, the, there are some people and I, and I think this, this goes for uh, maybe novelists perhaps more than what I do. I, I do nonfiction. I do journalism where they write every day and they, you know, they do the Ernest Hemingway a thousand words a day or uh, more than that or, or whatever. And they, they just kind of get in that zone. I, I tend to, to work on a project by project basis. So I just came back from, um, two weeks in Sweden where uh, I have a, a bunch of relatives there and I'm writing a story, a magazine piece about it. Uh, tomorrow, I will sit down and start it and I will spend most of the morning on it and I won't check my email. Uh, I, I won't check my phone and, or I won't check any of my social media feeds. And this is actually one of the things I appreciate about journalism is 
journalism trains you to lock in and uh, and to be able to uh, write regardless of the circumstances uh, around you. So I have a three-year-old grandson who will be over here tomorrow with uh, with one of my uh, w- with my daughter-in-law and there's going to be, they're going to be playing soccer in the backyard and they're going to be doing all sorts of stuff. And it's going to be fine to just tune that out. Um, So there's, there's a certain discipline in there that I think journalism uh, really drums into you. But, um, but I, I think that kind of discipline is achievable for anybody. If all you can do is 30 minutes without interruption, do 30 minutes. And, and so it, for me, it isn't a, a necessity to be writing every day. It is a necessity for me to be working on something all the time. What sort of schedule would you have in that? And I, I'm asking this from question of how would you lay out what you're going to write? Because you have an end goal and where you are now with all the information you've prepared and gathered. Would you do like a, a first draft, second draft, third draft? Or are you more the type of person that would just get it all out and then edit small bits? I love this question because this is this is the biggest issue that I deal with with students at the university uh, where I teach is, I don't know how it is in England, uh, but in the, in the US, students, when they write something, they want it to be perfect before they move on to the next sentence or the next paragraph. And so they will just labor over one paragraph, maybe the, even the opening paragraph. And that is just, in my opinion, that is just such a colossal waste of time. What my, my, because they're perfectionists, students are, they, they're, they're trained to write to tests and to, uh, and to satisfy certain criteria. And my personal opinion is that's very counterproductive. What I try to get them to do, in fact, I have them do it in classes, even though it's so uncomfortable for them, is I have, I time it. And I have them write without stopping. So they, they, they can't even, they can't think, they can't look up a word, they can't do anything. They just, I time it, they have to write without stopping. And what that does is that helps just unlock stuff in their, uh, in their minds. So the best image I have for, to answer your question is I don't wait until I know exactly what the story is about. I start to write and, and, and the image I use is I just sort of back the truck up and I dump it all out. Everything just kind of blasts out and it's not artistic and it's nothing that you would ever want to read, but it's a way to get it out of my unconscious self, hang some language on it. And it's only then, this is my experience, not everybody's experience, only then do I know what I've got to work with. Like a Michelangelo sculpting David. Yeah, that's I, I love the the Michelangelo image where he's he's just got this huge piece of marble and he's just chipping away, chipping away, asking himself, what's in there? And he's just chipping away, oh, it's a David. And I would assume you would have a general sense of where you wanted the the piece you're gonna write to go, like a, an end goal. You know, that's a that's a good point. I often do not. And, and so I'll, I'll give you an example about this, uh, this Sweden story that I'm working on. Um, I didn't know what the story was about until I wrote a pitch to a magazine. I, I came back 
and just thought, I'm going to start writing ideas about what my trip to Sweden was. So, so the trip was, I went there for midsummer, and I have I have cousins in Gotland, this island off of the mainland, where um, th- whom I've never met, and they're part of this folk music thing where they celebrate midsummer like it's 1700 something, and I just thought I I just got to go and see that. So I went and um, and not until I got back and started writing a pitch to an editor did I know what I wanted this story to be. It was not until then. And now I know where it's going. But honestly, I did not know while I was there or even before I started writing the pitch what I wanted my end goal to be. That's very interesting. I would I feel I would get so anxious doing that. You have to trust the process. You do have to trust the process and you have to trust your unconscious self that it's going to reveal to you the meaning of what it is you just experienced. But to try to figure that out ahead of time, I think is backward. Yeah, yeah. And how would you organize the A, the type of conversation and B, what sort of questions can you put first and last and middle? Are there any sort of uh, layers to it? Yeah, actually, this is a, it's there's a real strategy to it. And I'm glad you asked, because I look at uh, crafting an interview similar to how I would craft a story, which would be I want to have an interesting beginning point. And maybe it's just a way to connect with that uh, person I'm interviewing. It might be something I, 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 I know about their background, about where they went to school or something where I will try to engage that person ahead of time. And then the questions in my, the way I would try to craft it is they get a little more complicated than a little more complicated, a little more open-ended. And if, if it's a person who I need to ask a question where it's a little bit uh, uncomfortable or thorny uh, for that person, I'll wait until about two thirds of the way into the interview and then I'll ask it because I've had all this time for them to trust me up until this point. So uh, they don't think I'm just trying to ambush them. And so you do that. And and the other reason you do that is if they are uh, really bothered by that question and they want to just call an end to the interview, you've still got two thirds of, of pretty good stuff, you know? So, so you, but, but that's similar to a story, right? You start with something interesting or action oriented, then you build up the complexity and you get to this sort of climactic point of a story. And then you've got this kind of falling off time where it, then you, you bring it back, redeem whatever the conflict was there. And so I try to do interviews in a similar uh, kind of structure. Yeah, that's a really good point. I would never have thought of this before I read the book. In my mind, it was she just have a normal interview. There was no, not much preparation. But after reading it, it gives so much responsibility on the interviewer yes. to make it good, bad, ugly, whatever. And it's it kind of falls on your shoulders. It is on you, and I I agree. I, sometimes you know people will watch something and say, "Well, that wasn't that guy wasn't very interesting as a as a subject." And you just think, "Well, that was that's on the on the guy uh, that's on the person asking the question." Yeah. From that one point, I remember hearing Jordan Peterson, who said was, if you ever have a boring conversation, it's because you're not asking the right questions. I'm I'm totally on board. Yeah, I completely agree. And I can't believe I work in construction. 
So I work with cranes lifting stuff. I'm not the driver. I'm the one on the floor or the health and safety stuff like that. And being that job role, I get to see all of the other subcontractors that do their jobs. So it's a nice, like a, a, a little taste from every part of the construction game. Yeah, you, you see different slices of humanity just in your everyday job. Absolutely. And the amount of people I talk to, if you ask, and I find it fascinating, maybe that's why I started the podcast, but all it takes sometimes is to ask one penetrating question and then it just unravels a whole mystery and mind-blowing life story of this one person. And you would have thought, wow, I literally did not know their name 10 minutes ago. And now they're telling me about everything. People are people are usually way more interesting than we give them credit for. And 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 the way you unlock it is exactly as you said, it's just a well-placed, a well-timed question, just to show you're interested in their story. And how would you you mentioned rapport? So you'd build that with just spending time and having a, a comfortable conversation. How would you then build that if you had a triggering conversation, like a point or a gotcha moment? You mean as far as establishing uh, rapport and then leading up to that sort of gotcha time? Uh, if I refine my question more, if you have a person sitting across the table from you that you don't see eye to eye, you're against their beliefs and whatnot, you as a journalist would have to get rid of your ego, like you mentioned, and have a hard conversation, be it someone like, let's say, Donald Trump. But for the interviewer, it, I rarely think about the interviewer's stand. How do they feel? Do they feel awkward, anxious, stressed about asking that heated topic? Yeah, that, it, that's actually really important. Um, they've got to stick to the reason for why they're doing the interview. There's, there's a really good example of somebody who interviewed uh, Donald Trump, uh, Jonathan Swan from Axios. You can find this on online. He just he just stayed so calm, and just kept coming back to the question and coming back to the question. And Trump was was trying to avoid it and trying to uh, distract and uh, obfuscate and all that. But uh, he just did it in such a calm way that I I learned something from watching that interview. Where just because this person is trying to rattle you doesn't mean you have to get rattled. You can, you can just keep sticking to your point. You just have to keep coming back to, why am I conducting this interview? And I guess that's one of the biggest points that a beginner would find is they don't have the self-belief that they should be there to ask those sort of questions. Do you see that in, in some of your students? I feel if I was one, I would be there. Yeah, ab absolutely. And that's, that's just one of those things that comes with practice where, you know, if, if a student feels like they have to interview the president of the university, for instance. You know, they're just going to be totally intimidated, perhaps, or feel like this person has all the power and all that. But how else are you going to find stuff out if you don't just uh, keep, keep asking and, and sticking to the questions? You sparked about in the book is having two humans a conversation. It's never really an interview and an interview. It's just two people trying to get to know a certain source or topic. Yeah. And once you can get to that level where it's just two human beings, as opposed to these two role playing uh, uh, things going on, uh, the sooner you can get to that humanity point, um, the common humanity point, the, the better the conversation is going to go. I'll, I'll give you an example of uh, sticking to the point 
even though somebody is trying to derail it. The one time I sued somebody in court, uh, I was representing myself. Somebody had taken advantage of me financially, and that person had an attorney, and I, I was representing myself. So we go to court, and I got some great advice from a, a mentor who said, here's what's going to happen. Every time you raise a point about how much money this person owes you, that attorney is going to try to distract the judge and try to get the judge off the point. And all you have to say is, Your Honor, we are here to do one thing and one thing only, and, and that is to prove that this person owes me this, this money and, uh, and do it really respectfully. And you know what? That guy, the guy who gave me that advice was 100% correct. Wow. I probably said, Your Honor, we are here to prove one thing and one thing. I probably said that 40 times in, in maybe less than an hour uh, hearing, I, I prevailed. So, so my point is recognizing when somebody is trying to derail this thing, you can just very gently and very humanly without uh, being insulting and out being, without being arrogant, just say, well, actually the question I'm asking is this. Yeah, I like that, I really like that. So, We've spoken about how to find a person to interview, what to say in the interview and the preparational stages. How do you end an interview? Yeah, uh, there are a couple of really important questions to ask at the end of every interview, in my opinion. I mean, you can kind of tell when when that person's running out of time or you've you've kind of gotten everything you need to know. These These seem so obvious, but I'm telling you, they will make or break your relationship with this person. And, and that is at the end of every interview, I say, can you spell your name for me? Because sometimes you, you would be surprised at all the different ways, let's say a traditional name of, of a woman's name is Amy. You would be surprised at all the different ways you can spell Amy. And you get that wrong in your, uh, in your story. Why would anybody believe anything else about your, your story? That's the most gettable fact in your story. And you, the person you're interviewing totally respects you for it. Asking that question is a way of, of creating some accuracy and respect. Then saying, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? That, that will open up sometimes an enormous new topic and new subject. Maybe one of the other super important points to say, is there anybody else I should talk to on this topic? And oftentimes the person you are talking to will say, well, actually the person who knows way more about this than I do is, and then they give you that person's. And then finally, I would ask, uh, can I follow up with you uh, if I have any more questions? So you just kind of leave the door open. That kind of concludes the, uh, the questions that I had of the book. I had a few personal questions. Uh, although we've been sprinkling this interview with personal wisdom from yourself. One of them was, as a journalist, I know no other journalist. How have you seen, being in the game for so long, social media and the internet change? Because now we have, anyone can put anything online. So there's, there's almost an element of fact-checking in my question. Yeah, I, I think now, you know, I've taught journalism at the university where I am for 39 years. And so you can imagine the changes that have occurred in journalism um, since I started teaching it. But there's one thing that hasn't changed, and this is what I, 
what we kind of double down on with uh, students is it doesn't matter if what you're working on is going to be an Instagram post or a TikTok video or a, or a tweet or now an X or whatever it is we're going to call it. It still has to be accurate and it still has to be interesting. And there's still there's always going to be a need for verified information that's interesting. And so if you can just kind of keep shifting with the technology without losing the central core of storytelling, storytelling that is based on verifiable, factual information, then, you know, all of the evolution of the technology might change the attention span. But fundamentally, what we're dealing with is information that you can trust. And over time, and we've all, we've all seen examples of information that you can't trust, over time, I believe truthful information emerges. And you want to be on that side, not on the side that just kind of gets caught up in, oh my, let's, we could be first. And so you want to be on the side of accuracy. That actually hasn't changed. One, one thing that maybe has changed a little bit that I've had to adjust to is in a lot of even mainstream news, there are a lot of news organizations who are okay with the reporter inserting themselves into the story a little bit and becoming part of the story or at least giving kind of their involvement in this. I don't like doing it because that got pounded out of me in journalism school as a young person. Um, but even, it, even travel stories I've done for the New York Times, um, I've often gotten... Uh, responses from the editor that say we need more of you in this story, and and that and that hasn't been my that hasn't been my training. So oftentimes that's becoming more and more acceptable without it necessarily being a biased uh, kind of thing. It's, it just makes it more personal, and that's so that's been one of the shifts. Yeah, I like that. So have you seen then? I'm sure you must have heard of it. Chat GPT. The, the large language model that you can go online and prompt it to write a book within just two minutes, however you'd like. But I would, I would imagine that if you're actually going to pursue a career in journalism or writing, that this would be a cool side project, but you're going to try and develop your own skills. And I, I feel, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel people that aren't aimed at becoming better writers or journalism or interviewers, they would use that as their main because it's an easier way an easy way out so how would you imagine five years to be in journalism with ai yeah i'm from a just from a writing standpoint i mean the the ability it, it just takes out the cutting and the pasting that people have always done you know since the internet so it just makes it uh just makes it a little uh, a little easier for you to just grab somebody else's work i, I will say one of the dangers that i see is ChatGPT, most of the uh, the AI models scrub from everything that's out there. Well, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just plain wrong. You know, it's bogus. It's made up. It's it's harmful, and so it's it's pulling from that too. So the crucial thing, in my opinion, will be, okay. So we have something that's created through an AI program. 
all the more reason you've got to fact check it. All the more reason you've got to spend the extra time verifying. I think that's going to be where the next level of scrutiny has to occur. It's going to replace, it, it's already replaced a lot of legal clerking, you know, and it will have an impact on journalism as well. But here's here's the thing, Sheldon. I, people still like to read a good story. Yeah. And I have tried to recreate uh, different authors' voices uh, before I've interviewed them and said, okay, what would ChatGPT look like in this guy's voice about climate change, for instance? And then it just it just rolls something out within seconds. And it doesn't sound like that guy at all. It has a lot of the same information. So here's here's my point. Reading a good story is still fundamental to being a human being. And I think we're always going to have a place for good, authentic, original storytelling. And so I just want to get better at it so that I can't be, I can't be just uh, completely uh, replaced by a robot. Well, that's beautifully put. Um, I just have one more question for you. And it's a personal question. So feel free to take your time. If you could go back an early teenager of yourself, what would be the advice you would bring from now back then? Yeah, I love this question because uh, it's another way of saying, what have you learned? Have you learned anything? <laughs> you know, and I think I would say it's it's two parts of probably the same answer. Um, one would be stop trying so hard. Stop, just stop trying so hard. Uh, and the other piece of that would be don't take yourself so seriously. I think a lot of us spend so much of our adolescence and then early uh, adulthood in trying to be taken seriously. And I don't know, I'm at the other side of that now where I just think, uh, was that really that important? I, I, I just think who you are and how you are is going to emerge the more you kind of let all of those other voices go and I just think you're going to be happier and more content. And I'll 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 just give you this as as an example. Um, I I am a spiritually minded person, and so I read a lot from this Trappist monk uh, Thomas Merton, who talks about being the the true self versus the false self. And really, the, the becoming an adult seems to me is more and more discovering and embracing your true self who you are, who you were created to be, what you're good at, what you're not trying to pose as. And tied to that is a, a level of contentment that you won't find anywhere else. So I, I have a, uh, a three-year-old grandson who I take care of uh, every now and then. And I actually love taking care of him. I love spending a day with him for this reason. As opposed to when my own kids were little, I was still trying to do something else and be something else and build something else while I was being a dad. Now I'm a grandfather. I don't have a divided self anymore. When, I, when I've got my grandson with me, he's the only thing I'm, I'm uh, focused on. And I think the more you can find who that sort of true self is and, and not be a divided self, in my opinion, 
is going to be the uh, the way to live with way less stress and uh, way less contradiction. Yeah, no, I really like that. Having a mindful approach. I think that's what the true self is, is having a mindful approach. Well, Dean Nelson, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. It was my my pleasure. And uh, and you asked good questions, by the way. You're gonna wonder, did he, did he think this was a decent interview? This was a really good interview. You did well. Ah, I will pay you later, Dean. Thank you very much for saying that. <laughs> my pleasure. It was fun talking to you.